0: Oh, hey there. It's me, Chance of Punk Journalism. And today I'm going to be chatting with Aaron James. He's the author of national best-selling book, Assholes, A Theory. James is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Irvine. And spoiler alert, he is not an asshole. Coming up is my conversation with Travis Langley. He's the author of Batman and Psychology, A Dark and Stormy Night, as well as several other and psychology books. We're going to be talking about the recent film Joker, and the work that the film did at addressing the importance of mental health issues. Following that, I'm going to be talking to Dwayne Bidwell. He's the author of When One Religion Isn't Enough, The Lives of Spiritually Fluid People. Finally, I'm going to be talking to Brian Ford. He's the producer of Black in a Colorful State, The Pros and Cons of Being Black in Colorado. Visit punkdashjournalism.com journalismcom to see everything I've done so far, including podcasts and blogs. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay current with what I've got coming up. Finally, subscribe to Punk Journalism on iTunes. I don't ask for anything other than that. So if you like what I'm doing and you appreciate my work, that would be a really great way of repaying me. You can also listen to me on SoundCloud and YouTube. We'll start with what was your motivation for writing this?
1: Uh, Why write the book? Um, Well, first, I mean... I had the idea for the I had the definition of what it is to be an asshole which was inspired by surfing, uh, you know, encountering surfer assholes and then right. thinking, Hey, there's a concept here and uh, philosophy can define it. So I well, had so that you kind surf, of kick.
0: right. That has, this, has that been in a personal experience with you?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a surfer. And um and uh, I, mean, I encounter outside of surfing, but sort of they were very the asshole in the lineup who Cuts, uh, breaks the rules of right away and then gets angry at other people when they complain, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, that guy, you know, is a familiar kind of character, um, in surfing. And it occurred to me one day that, um, you know, one particular guy was an asshole and that, uh, and thinking that thought I wasn't just venting, you know, f- by feelings at him, I was classifying him as of a certain type and uh, so then I thought, well, that's the kind of thing you can define as a philosopher, so what, what would be a definition? And so I, I came up with the definition that I that I have in the book at that point. Uh, I, I, I kicked it around for a while, just like sharing it over drinks, you know, for fun, like party conversation. Yeah. You know, here I've got a definition of an asshole, what do you think, kind of thing. And then it wasn't until I was a, f- a fellow for a year at the Center for Advanced Studies uh, in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, that uh, I was doing the same thing, sharing it over lunch, you know, with all of these different scholars. And then, so they would, you know, people like it as usual, but they like had this sort of, uh, uh, from their different disciplines would share with me like the relevant stuff that they uh, had from their disciplines, like history or psychology or social science or whatever sort. And um, I sort of accidentally became like the world's repository of asshole knowledge. <laughs> it, was
0: that repository of asshole knowledge? <laughs> so, and I want to get this right. You said that what I found is your definition is the asshole allows himself to enjoy special advantages and social relations out of an entrenched sense of entitlement that immunizes him against the complaints of other people. Is that right? Yeah, that's it,
1: that's it. It's stated as a mouthful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, what does your research usually involve?
1: Uh, well, I had so I had that definition, and then I decided to uh, write as a book. So at the time at Stanford, I was writing a book on fairness in the global economy, in political philosophy. That's my usual research, and that was, you know, I still have ongoing research, you know, projects and programs in both political philosophy and ethics and, um, and other stuff. Um, but uh, at the time, I thought – after writing the book about fairness, I thought as a sort of side project, I'd just try out writing a um, a, a, pop, a popular book. And the idea was that, like, maybe philosophers hadn't done the best job of doing sort of popularizing philosophy. Yeah. yeah. And um, and the idea was it wouldn't it wouldn't just be it wouldn't just be a popularization of philosophy that's anyway there. It would be original philosophy, but just done in a way that can engage the general reader. And that's written from the point of view of, you know, existential concerns that we all sort of share. And right. that is, you know, we all got an asshole in our life. We're all stuck. Well, and Nick and I were talking and, about and, how um,
0: philosophy is, is a difficult subject to, to kind of read leisurely. And, and how did you put that, Nick?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult subject to kind of just sit back and take it in because it requires so much work. It's almost like you, you're you trying to hammer a nail into a wall, and after you're done, you just keep hammering it so you can tackle any sort of yeah. arguments that may come your way. Yeah. Um,
1: well, this, yeah. But I thought that was that was sort of a flaw in the way that I saw people – like people, philosophers approach pop philosophy is they kind of offered a back-to-college experience the knowing – the knowing professor explaining stuff. And then if you wanted to like sit in the classroom and sort of force yourself to learn a bunch of stuff as though studying for a test, you know, then you could do that. Uh, and there'd be a, there'd be some pop culture hooks, but it'd basically be like a college lecture. And I thought yeah. that wasn't very engaging. Um, I mean, it wasn't just not engaging. It wasn't sort of accessible. It, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't really accessible. and And, and it sort of presupposes that you're, you're a student and you're trying to like learn or at least show that you've learned exactly. so, like a body of knowledge right. as opposed to somebody who's just reading a book and is trying to just understand themselves and their life and their, their society and maybe learn some stuff, you know, for, and then philosophy it really is important and relevant in that way. Um, but then to, to bring out that relevance, you kind of have to do, do it in a, in a more upside down way compared to what academics would usually do. So it's not the theory first. It's sort of, you start from sort of the concrete problems and, 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 and importantly for the book, it was, it wasn't just like, Oh, this curious thing, who are the assholes or who are not? It was, it was our sense of frustration, like, which I've experienced lots of times, just a really like being profoundly bothered by the asshole you're stuck with, you know, having these difficult conversations and like maybe yelling matches and then finding yourself, giving the worst reaction (laughs) disappointing yourself and
0: yeah it's a i mean it's a level of toxicity that i think that when you try to have a discussion with somebody like that you cut. you i mean you obviously find yourself beating your head up against the wall because you know you're not going to change their disposition or their the way that they are thinking about a certain thing so it's uh it seems like sort of a a um a uh a lost cause in some ways. And, and that was what we Nick and I were discussing as far as, you know, what your motive, your, uh, I guess what you want people to get out of this book. Is it, you know, how to deal with assholes, how to approach them, or just kind of how to accept that they exist and, you know, what do we do from this point forward? You know, is it, is it worth?
1: Yeah. The, the, right. I mean, the first thing was just given those frustrations and that familiar sort of problem, I thought, well, philosophy can just be useful for helping just clarify what you're dealing with. Like, who, who is the asshole who's not an asshole? And then what what is it about them that that gets, puts us in this difficult, compromised position where we are sort of find ourselves overreacting or underreacting or kind of can't find a happy way of dealing? So just clarity... Um, and just understanding the sort of dynamics and, and what's at stake for us in those encounters that already would be a kind of helpful thing. Right. So just, and that would be a kind that's a kind of philosophical knowledge too. You know, it's traditional just a definition and articulation of the moral psychology and the dynamics behind it. So that was what the, that's the sort of central part of the story um, in the book. But then from there, I, you know, that was the main thing I sort of was trying to offer as helpful. It wasn't supposed to be like, practical self-help tips um, in the book and actually made jokes about how there's no, um, there's no easy seven step guide to an asshole free life, you know? (laughs) Um, And the philosopher is telling you, you know, why there can't be one, you know? Uh, But then after I wrote the book, actually, I was giving talks and stuff and people always wanted to hear, well, what can I do? Right. Um, Practically speaking. And I had some, some ideas in the book, but I thought, and then some ideas afterwards. So I thought, well, why don't I just write down, a list of like everything that might be helpful and um, so I wrote down like 15 things and so it's like oh okay there it is that's a 15 step guide to an SL free life you know like basically yeah that's so, manageable sure yeah so but the goal the goal wasn't um, the goal wasn't practical tips as much as philosophical understanding of like a deeply profoundly frustrating yeah um, because we all deal 100%. with it every day and yeah
0: you know, and sometimes we, we are stuck with those people like like you're saying,
1: yeah yeah right, um, so that raises lots of then philosophical questions about acceptance and you know that I got into, and our feelings of recognition being denied recognition, so it it leads pretty quickly into sort of deeper philosophical themes that that you that run through especially political philosophy but moral theory, um going back especially to Rousseau, I think who was on to a lot of. Uh, who like, was one of the first to most clearly identify a lot of the stuff that's at stake. So it's kind of a Rousseauian story um, uh, in the, in the book. Um, uh, and then there was like upshot of, for political philosophy, for asshole capitalism and what you do as a society at a societal level about the, the rise of the asshole and um, what kind of threat do they pose and how do you manage that from a sort of collective or institutional point of view um yeah so it, it feeds into all of this just any sort of interesting connection i thought there was between with sort of philosophical ideas i thought okay well my job in the book is just to make the connections just to develop them you know around this organizing theme and and concern
2: sure i was actually wondering you know when you're sitting down and discussing this book uh, this book with like your colleagues or um, just people in general, has there been any sort of main criticism for your theory on assholes, anything that seems to to come up a lot? Um,
1: let's see, a big criticism. Um, I don't know, not so much with the content of the theory, you can sort of quibble about some of the terms, sure. um, but not any big reputation, I mean... For the most part, people felt like, even including philosophers, felt like, "Oh, hey, I met I met that guy, and oh yeah, that is there is a concept there, you know." And so maybe they quibble about exactly how to how to put the conditions sometimes, um, or maybe add another condition. So, but there wasn't any sort of um, typical sort of big objection to it. I mean, I guess the bigger thing from the point of view of the political philosophy argument is in the book that I think is a more of a bigger concern is that the book is sort of pitched from the point of view of a cooperative person where it's left open sort of what it is to be cooperative. um, And sort of these frustrations with a certain kind of non-cooperative person, the asshole or others, you know, the jerk or whatever. And um, but there that leaves out, that doesn't really deal with um, a range of cases in which things that are sort of, non-cooperative are fully justified and important, you know, forms of protest, for example, um, uh, which, you know, are often regarded by as sort of assholery, but, but then they might have important sort of democratic functions like democratic protests or breaking rules and civil disobedience and things like that. Right. So um, there's not really a, I guess the, the, the tone of the book was very much focused on the sort of cooperator point of view and focus on social cohesion and stuff. And that was, not that anyone rejects that per se, but but some people thought, well, look, a lot of like how progress happens is because people are non-cooperative, maybe acting more like assholes. And so sure. you need really a story about why something that either is assholery or might look like assholery is in fact a justified.
0: Well, and uh, this thing. would this relate to what you mentioned about cooperative being you're writing this from a cooperative Standpoint, You being a cooperative person, you mentioned that Bush is an asshole, George W. Bush, for his flagrant disregard for international law and thinking he's justified by his means, whereas Obama was an anti-asshole because he was so eager to listen and be cooperative and to understand as not to offend.
1: Yeah, right. And and probably to the fault on Obama's case. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't really, you know, he was sort of hyper cooperative at a time in which. Um, he wasn't, there wasn't reciprocal cooperation from the other side. You know? So I mean, in some sense, I think it's just true about his politics that he sort of massively misread, misread his political opposition. I mean, imagining a sort of cooperative core of, uh, in the GOP that just didn't exist. Um, and, um, and so he's kind of struggling. So in some sense, he might have, um, at least that's a certain idea of what bipartisan cooperation or consensus building was supposed to look like and I think he, that from an earlier era, maybe, and he was sort of trapped in that and, and didn't really adapt that well to the changing would you, like the rise of would polarization you say he was and bipartisan. I wouldn't say that so much. I mean, I think he was sort of fairly strategic about it, but it was sort of like this idea of like an imagine. you know, uh, yeah. He's imagining that it's the people he's dealing with are more reasonable than they are. So he's making sort of preemptive right. concessions. Saying, well, look, isn't this a reasonable sort of middle ground position? I'm conceding all kinds of things that I think, never... and they think, oh, hey, that was great. We haven't even started negotiating; you're already making concessions. So here, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wait, and I'm gonna stay... I'll just move the goalpost over here farther. <laughs> we'll start the negotiations even farther back, and then he makes more concessions. So that was the kind of thing is he wouldn't.
0: He was he, giving he people didn't... the benefit of the doubt, essentially.
1: Yeah, there was, which is often a reasonable thing to do, but in that case, in that case, you know, he, he just conceded way too much instead of sort of having the courage of his convictions and then doing the politics necessary to get it through and then pick off enough, you know, supporters from the other side or, you know, um, or, you know, even if you can't, I mean, to some extent they did, they did that in the end, but, um, by a process that maybe wasn't as fruitful as it could have been, I don't know. it's, It's easy to second guess these things. I mean, I think he was in general a pretty successful, uh, president, I mean, I don't think I don't think George Bush was a big asshole per se, but Dick Cheney was a full-fledged asshole. And, <laughs> right. Yeah, Donald Rumsfeld was a full-fledged asshole. And they they really did, you know, lead the Bush administration to do, you know, some pretty profound violations of international law um, and violations of inter- internal government protocol. Um, did the means justify know, uh, the end? Yeah, I mean, Cheney, for example, um... Uh, started presenting, giving speeches that weren't authorized, that didn't go through the usual, fact, you know, um, language checking and vetting process, and made it look like that the the administration had already decided to go to war with Iraq when in fact they didn't. Um, like some of the main other decision makers hadn't made that decision, but he made it seem inevitable, and then they sort of were drawn along in tow.
0: Yeah, they just kind of had um, to work around yeah. that because <laughs> he had already made that right. proposition. And, and
1: like yeah, right, so Cheney was really out of line there just from a sort of basic sort of procedure point of view, um, but then, and then, you know, and did something, you know, that, um, well, really wrong in a lot of ways, and not just not just in the sense that it had, you know, really bad catastrophic outcomes, you know. Um, or Rumsfeld, for example, you know, the the idea that you can just invade a country and then you do nothing, or you, or you, I mean, he was actively, the people who were there in Iraq, trying to help rebuild the country, he was actively trying to subvert their efforts. Like, he was telling them, no, you know, it was this myth of self-organizing society or whatever, and it's just going to spontaneously flower and rebuild and stuff. Um, as opposed to thinking, you know, well, if you broke it, you fix it. Like, you know, like, like
0: Yeah, and that's if nothing
1: else, if you go to war you, then you, with a country, then you've got some really heavy-duty responsibilities, you know, and that's obviously, you could debate about how much responsibility there is, but the idea that, no, no, we just... We just invade a country and then and then sort of leave it alone, walk away, or have a sort of military. Sure, problem. and I was actually and having this conversation
0: myself. with somebody the other day, and they were they were talking about you know the uh, the merits of the Trump administration taking out the leader of uh, ISIS recently, and and I was like, you know, but is that are we patting ourselves on the back for cleaning up a mess that we created when we you know left a vacuum in that area after after we took out Saddam Hussein, like it's, that was kind of our, you know, a catalyst that we created. Right. You know?
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, that's, that's, it's like a sore, I mean, it's a mess we, we've made and haven't been able to, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking out an ISIS. Sure. Right. You know, that's all the good, but, but it isn't, but it's not like, oh, we're just suddenly, (laughs) there's suddenly this new threat out of the blue. It's all, I mean, like the whole history of the U S and the middle East, I guess is, um, it's like this, it's all, you know, mistakes on top of mistakes. Um, you know, and and so, and now, and now, you know, maybe it's arguably, it'll be part of the story of America's decline, um, in the big scheme of things as well. So, um, and but anyway,
0: so, uh, I want to go back to something that you just briefly touched on a moment ago. You mentioned asshole capitalism and, I, I was hoping to get a little bit of explanation of, of what that is. I've, you know, I understand. I, I feel like I understand what it is, but at least for the folks listening, um, you had mentioned that uh, it, it entails getting rich without the concern of, of the cost to others. And I think that this is very indicative of the libertarian idea of let me do my own thing and you do your own thing and let's just leave each other alone. And I think that that idea really fails to recognize that whatever you do. There's always going to be a ripple effect, large or small, whether it be a media or whether it has an effect on Chinese laborers across the world who make your iPhone. Um, and then you mentioned also that the decisions of capitalism should be made by people who are na- not assholes. So can we explore that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe to start by saying, um, I mean, there is a more principled kind of libertarian position that I don't think is like an inherently asshole kind of position i mean i think it's wrong in various ways but i mean so for example certain libertarians will think that um people have natural rights and that everyone has a duty to respect those rights involves like not harming harming them interfering with them coercing them manipulating them, deceiving and things like that and that's all basic matter of right and wrong mm-hmm. um, but then as a matter of sort of our larger society and political economy they might be pretty skeptical about um, politicians and their you know, abuses of power and want to rein that in and have a limited government, but then optimistic about the ability of markets to organize basically self-interested uh, behavior for the greater good. Um, and so then be really optimistic that, well, no, you can sort of trust markets, even if, you know, you're, even if people are acting from self-interest, this can sort of work out through larger market forces for the greater good. And now, so like that basic pat, pic, picture, I don't think there's anything inherently sort of asshole in that picture. But and, but it becomes a kind of it can become a kind of what you might call asshole capital version of capitalism when that it, it sort of loses track of any principled justification that there might be and just becomes a kind of standing permission or encouragement to just um, take what you can do what you can um, um, and shit without any concern for the public good right so. Um, um a sort of standing permission or entitlement to just look out for number one, you know, because greed is good. And then the story about how this work, this whole system working out for the greater good becomes kind of just like a convenient slogan. And well, it kind of goes back wrong. to that yeah. idea
0: that I, I believe is flawed where, you know, it, it assumes that you you are exactly in the situation you're in based off of the decisions you made. And if you are in a bad situation place whether it be impoverished or your health or whatever it's because you made the decisions to get you there and it it really doesn't recognize yeah, right. the circumstances. So like there's an
1: idea of like the poor deserve their po- deserve the poverty the rich deserve their gains that's a desert idea that's not usually associated with um like a more sort of philosophical libertarian view the view that like robert nozick for example defended would it's not that there's any notion of dessert doesn't play the work it's just that um, we just have certain natural entitlements that use our talents in the market and make exchanges with others market exchanges and and that can involve you know having large amounts of wealth and inequality doesn't matter because we're just in, we're doing things that we're entitled to do and so the pattern of distribution that results is there's nothing wrong with it that's not to say that you people deserve that we can sort of that there's a certain rational way you can rationalize people who have less or people who are lower on the income that's on the income distribution that they deserve what they got, that they should have gone to school or they could always go to school. So there's ways that there's ways that certain ideas like American opportunity or, um, you know, anyone can be rich get used in this kind of more in a, in a system of asshole capitalism is like a standing rationalization for privilege. Um, so I can, I'll take as much as I can get. I don't have to worry about the public good and the people who have less, that's just their fault. That's becomes, not even something that's really even argued for. It's just like um, it's just something that's said whenever you know, um, um, as like just a convenient justification or a, a rationalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so a system that sends that message and then is a, in a self-sustaining way isn't just appealing to people who are anyway assholes, but but gradually creates assholes, people who are sort of borderline cases who could go either way, or people who are even basically cooperative people get in certain contexts, induced into acting like an asshole. When you have a system that is creating in powerful incentives, powerful money-based status-based incentives for acting like an asshole or being an asshole, that's when the idea is, it's, that's an inherently pro, uh, unstable system because the very foundations of, of any society, including a capital society, depend on cooperation. Right. Um, and if cooper- that cooperation is being unraveled or eroded, by the by, the asshole capitalist economic incentives or, and rationalizations, then then it can sort of undermine itself. Well, in, and you, you say know, like that asshole,
0: asshole capitalism makes it more difficult to uphold social institutions. So I think that that kind of is in line with what you're saying right now.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, if only because, I mean, basic social institutions require trust and they require Um, a a sense that people are upholding them and that, you know, officials are going to do their, do their requisite duties and they're going to respect rights and they're not going to overstretch their powers, you know, and things like that. And the more people have the sense that, no, everybody's just being selfish. There isn't anybody who's really responsible. And if everyone else is like that, I am too. And and if this is all the way in the world, then why would you trust anybody to actually show any kind of measure of, 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 public responsibility. Right. And so once that trust erodes, I think, and it is, it is eroding a lot. I mean, it has for a long time, actually, a long-standing decline of trust in the United States and other Western democracies. Uh, but I think now it's just become accelerated, um, in a really big way. So, yeah.
2: Sure. I kind of wanted to shift a little bit, um, and, and see about your thoughts on this idea of there being potentially an uptake in asshole production, um, a couple times you you may – and correct me if I'm wrong you, – you may have alluded to um, social media um, yeah. kind of being responsible for this idea of like this thin moral pretext of everyone kind of shouting their daily mundane tasks and feeling entitled to some sort of social capital for doing um, basically nothing other than being a human being. Um, and this is a concept that sometimes I struggle with a little bit. As a media scholar, I always wonder—you know—is this really is social media, for example, really causing people to be, you know, doing X, Y, Z, or are people just like this? Like chicken and yeah, yeah, like people. People are just automatically they're selfish and they're they're entitled and social media is just simply an outlet, it's making them easier to demonstrate these qualities. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that kind of debate or that argument. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, about social media in particular, I mean, I think there are a lot of big background causes of the rise of assholery. I don't think there's just more reporting of assholes or the more visible. I mean, it probably is on the rise, both assholes and assholery among non-assholes. But the social media, then, is a good example, I think, of a case in which – as it were, the architecture of this, of the social structure induces assholery. And so it's not just the people who would any way be assholes are sort of revealed, but people who are otherwise maybe cooperative and, and fine at a party or at a coffee shop or whatever, suddenly they go online and it's just really easy for them to um, lack restraint, you know, um, in, and that's partly just because various acts, features of the context, like it's relatively anonymous, you're not talking to someone face-to-face, um, and it's sort of like driving a car is a little bit like the same kind of thing, I think. Um, I mean, in a car, you're not really related. You're relating to a, a person sort of mediated by this big object, this car, and it's kind of an impersonal way of relating, and uh, so there's not sort of clear-cut forms of communication in that case. Um, it's sort of impersonal, and that can mean that we're more likely to, more likely to drive like an asshole, um, then you would, if you were like interacting with someone in a coffee shop, for example, like encountering other people sure. and sort of face to face. Or body, if you're in the you know, grocery
0: store is. and step in front of somebody on accident, it's kind of the same idea as being in your car. Like you just say, Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. And you go oh, on about your day, you know, but right, you have right. that bubble that protects you.
1: So I think social media is a big, uh, is a similar kind of thing. Like the car case, but except it's, except maybe it's worse because you're not really talking to anyone in particular. You're sort of talking to a general audience. And then, especially if you want your message to get out your tweet, to, to, to go get a lot of likes or whatever, right, right. Um, then you sort of, you pitch it to the audience and see what sort of sells or whatever. So there's a lot of sort of grandstanding behavior. Um, um, so this is a really just dis- distinctive kind of communication. So you get things like virtue signaling or rage, you know, you know, using rage uh, or, or other kinds of emotions that just attract attention. Mm-hmm. So there's an attention-getting game, right? That that the whole pl- the whole social media are all about allocating attention, right? Of what people are going to pay attention to, and then reinforce like through their networks, yeah. and then sort of our sense of that, both both skillfully orchestrated and just sort of naturally, you know, or by trial and error, means that we learn that the sort of um, kind of unproductive, not unconstructive or angry or uncivil kinds of uh, kinds of messages, Facebook posts or tweets just tend to, you know, there tend to be these big incentives for that as a way to sort of get attention and be be heard. Um, So it's very different from that's very, very different from talking to one person or talking with a a small group of people and trying to make a decision together in which the case the face-to-face interaction and the our ordinary norms of speech about sharing, you know, listening, each person having a turn or, you know, um, I mean, there's forms of assholery that come up there too or whatever, but we have ways of dealing with them or it's more conspicuous. Whereas, um, you know, in the social media environment, um, you know, there's not, we don't really have yet ways of reining um, that in to, it's to, to sort of make sure that discussion gets steered in a, um in a productive direction. Right. And then, you know, there's free speech limitations on how much governments can do about it. Um although maybe not I don't think those are as sharp as they're often thing. And then the basic social media platforms are doing sort of relatively minor, you know, tweaks to sort of um rein in
2: Right, like algorithms that are punishing, you know, certain types of language, for example.
1: Uh, yeah, right. Um so there I think the social media platforms have big public responsibilities to sort of to Manage and create a good architecture in the speech economy, and they're mostly just denying those responsibilities. Right. Not not entirely, but but the measures they're taking are pretty halting. Well, what
0: incentive do they limited. really have to do that? Because I think you know, it, a lot of research has also shown that more negative uh, messaging or or even advertisements get more um, views and attract more people than than positive ones. So I feel like they would almost be shooting themselves in the foot by by reining that in, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, well, it's, 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 uh, they have conflicting incentives a lot like the, any major media company. And they all, they're, they both have some sense of public responsibility, but then there are also private companies that are trying to make a buck and they're trying to get ratings and their eyeballs and attention. And then, you know, for the social media platforms, it's about engagement. Um, and, and, usage and um and And then right so they 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 you know can play just their their goal is to for the most part is to keep people on the platform to keep people engaged right and that so the algorithm steering people to um engaging content often means stuff that's like high-pitched emotional or fake news or um stuff that's more extreme than something they've seen before um so you know um those they have economic incentives to do all that stuff. Um, and it's only and it's sort of unclear, they might feel, how far they're supposed to compromise that. Um, for the sake of a general, some general idea of public responsibility. Um, and they do they do rein it into some degree, but I, I think for the most part, so for Zuckerberg, for example, is he's sort of far, more firm about disavowing responsibility than he is showing that they're taking real. Mm-hmm you know, concrete steps that are going to assure everyone, I mean, he'll say, you know, well, we don't want to break democracy, but it's like, okay, what are you doing? So that the platform isn't breaking democracy that you're, you're entrusted with basically a public, you know, the the public uh, medium that's really essential for democratic functioning. And, you know, he's not really, I don't think they're really showing a due sense of responsibility for making sure that, um, you know, that, the platforms become like conducive for, you know, well, and, and he demonstrated that. Supposed to work. Yeah.
0: Recently, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, I'm not, do you know, are you familiar with who yeah, he is? He's the, I know that video, yeah. yeah. Did you yeah. see the, I think it was last week yeah. or the week before he, uh, yeah,
1: I thought it was really well done. Yeah, yeah,
0: that was great. And, you know, he mentioned how, uh, they, they really, they aren't fact checking, checking any of these political ads that are going out. And, and I think that that just stirs people's, Vitriol even further and 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 whips people up into a frenzy and and so I, I'm glad that and he's been called before Congress. Um, uh, Zuckerberg has and so I'm glad to see uh. that there's been attention brought to this. But um, something I was going to bring up as far as social media and and the influx of assholes and that contributing. Um, you had mentioned before that assholes act out of a sense of entitlement to, you know, feel in some way they are special and deserve to act this way. And I wonder if, because social media kind of makes you feel like you're, you are unique or you're special, uh, are, is that contribute to this influx? Um, everyone has a space now to promote themselves and create this false sense of being special.
1: Um, yeah, I think there's some suggestion that well, I guess there's a background thing is just social media in general is very focused on, you know, your, your construction of your, you're your creating this, this avatar, this image of yourself. Um, and that's through pictures, but also through, you know, things you say, you know, the whole persona, you know, in the old sense attached to it that could be pretty different from who you actually are in, 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 in real life, as they say, sure. yeah. <laughs> as though, as though like uh, social media interactions aren't in real life, but also, but um Uh, in virtual life, and now, like, that creates its own kinds of um, problems, some of which you mentioned before, but for maybe a certain generation of people or a certain type of person, especially people that are prone to self-absorption or narcissism, um, the danger is that people don't really form or have an independent idea of themselves, right? Right. That their sort of sense of self is really catering to um, their online persona. And to the extent that's where the way that they get validation either from their photos or followers or, or getting attention, that just a hit of sort of recognition can be like a really central part of their sense of self-worth and self self-esteem. And that that's can be just dangerous for a bad state for a person to be in, you know? Um, but it also can mean that people have pretty, you know, deep, deep and personal sort of existential uh, reasons to sort of, just engage in all out of attention seeking and maybe not worry too much about um, whether what they're doing is productive or constructive or you know like um, just and especially because we score the game the, the quantitative aspect you know in followers and likes the numbers I think uh, as you know scoring as high as you can gives you a quantitative measure for for sort of almost for somebody's whole sense of worth you know like mm-hmm. uh, you, know, right. you your worth as a as a score and then you can maximize that score. And that sort of threatens to, um, drive out, uh, become a proxy for what's valuable, right? Um, and drive out aware someone's awareness of the other things that really are valuable that they then just don't pay attention to or, and maybe their values get transformed. Um, there's recent work called on value capture on this. It's really good. Um, related, but yeah, Um, um, by philosophers. But so I think, yeah, there's a way in which, yeah, sort of attention-seeking behavior and maybe certain kind of narcissism, self-absorption are definitely sort of created to some extent by the media and and in general are just, as a culture, we haven't yet really caught up with how to manage all of these trends or trends, these tendencies. I mean, the culture is slow.
2: Sure. So uh, just, you know, within this conversation right now, we've talked about um, political assholes and we've talked about, um, you know, maybe a more common type of asshole, like a social media asshole. And there's certainly a lot of different types of assholes that you've brought up in your book. Do you think you can say one asshole type is um, more assholish than uh, the other type? Could, do you think you, is this something that you can measure, for example, um, or is it simply just categories?
1: Yeah, I think I think the way I think of it is that they're just categories. They're different types of ass, asshole. I mean, in every case, the person is doing something they're not entitled to do. They don't have a justified entitled to. But then that can vary really in degrees of severity a lot, depending on how bad the wrong um, is done. In some In some cases, it can be a pretty mild wrong done or acting with entitlement. It's fairly mild. It's not a really grave wrong, and so that wouldn't be a really serious form of, of assholery, although it might be really frustrating and difficult, you know, in a particular situation. Um, but then there's other kinds that are maybe even sort of mildly, more mildly uncooperative, less brazen, but then because, but the, but the wrong done is really serious and has great consequences and that would think that's a worse, a worse form of assholery. So the theory doesn't really tell you what's better and worse. It just gives you types and then from there you can make uh, judgments about particular cases and, you know, what what sorts of problems are worse than
0: others you actually you say cutting in, cutting to the front of the line in itself isn't a bad thing the difference with the asshole is that he helps himself to more than his fair share uh, you call this a willful insensit- insensitivity so does it make a difference that a person knows willfully that they're being insensitive how do we how do we tell if the person realizes or not that they're being this way um i guess i think of someone who doesn't realize their insensit- insensitivity is like borderline sociopath as, as opposed to an asshole
1: well, I mean, I think they, there's you can just you, we just sort of guess and feel out these things. I mean, some people are just insensitive to social cues, um, it, not necessarily because of sociopathy. They don't if they have moral concepts or they care about other people, but they're just sort of chronically oblivious. Um, that person wouldn't necessarily be an asshole if, um, for example, if they really made a huge effort to try to try to um, compensate for their for the fact that they, they know that they're oblivious a lot and they sort of make really big efforts to, to pay attention and anticipate people's feelings. But then they still sort of chronically sort of typically fall short in that regard. I'm mean, that person. If they're making a big enough effort, you would, you might sometimes call them a jerk or whatever, or insensitive, but, um, you wouldn't think that they're an asshole. Um, Um, so, but I think it does make it worse. It does make it worse if somebody is sort of willfully disregards other people's interests. So someone is not just like prone to think, um, well, I'm, you know, I'm special or I have these special entitlements and I don't have to really pay attention to others. And then, um, when there's a doubt about that, about whether that's really true, you know, they sort of marshal convenient rationalizations and just, you know, go on about how undeserving these other people are or why they're all losers or incompetent or just these convenient, you know, once that starts to take on sort of a more willful aspect, um, sort of sort of willfully sustained and maintained. um, And that's, that's when you're getting into asshole territory.
0: So on that note, I wonder if I might be able to share a, of a case study with you that I experienced lately, and, and you can tell me which category this would fit into, if that's all right.
1: Sure. And I
0: don't think that I've shared this with you, Nick, yet. But so um, I do some blogging, and I uh, I kind of shop those around to local publications to see if it, what he wants to publish them. And recently, I wrote one in uh, there was a local magazine here in the Denver area that picked it up, and uh, the the uh, editor he you know made his edits and notes and suggestions, and was very very helpful um and very you know i i was very thankful that he offered those and per, in particular he said that the ending needed some work and and i agreed with him it was a little bit lacking so i took his suggestions and um he was very i mean he wasn't fluffy about it he was short and you know direct and to the point and kind of cold which i actually kind of appreciate just because i don't you know really care to beat around the bush about those things so once it was done and i made those those changes he uh, you said, you know, excellent work. Good job. Would you be interested in submitting some more work? And I said, yeah, that'd be awesome. You know, I appreciate the opportunity, et cetera. And so they published it and I, uh, immediately went over to their website to see that it was, you know, how it looked. And, you know, it was, there were a lot of things where, um, you know, there were a lot of, uh, editorial type issues, spacing issues, captions were really in the wrong places and, Somehow punctuation got changed from my original copy that I sent to him to then. And and so it was just kind of like my own standard of professionalism I was a little bit concerned about. And so I emailed him and I said, I would be interested in submitting more work to you, but the published product has a lot of punctuation errors, spacing issues and other editing problems. And uh, his immediate response was, while you had loosely organized host ideas, your writing was very amateur. There were no punctuation errors when I was done editing. I even had to slow walk you to a logical finish. I don't have time to teach you how to be a writer or how to be polite. I think we're cool on future mm. work with you. Talking to someone that takes the opportunity to help improve your work and publish you in such a rude way is not a good way to get ahead. So I was mm. I was a little bit thrown off from from that response and uh you know so as I was I was reading the book I was like I wonder where this guy would have fit in and and that was just my opinion. Maybe he's not an asshole or maybe he was perfectly Perfectly reasonable Yeah, I
1: mean, for right, yeah. For starters, I mean, it, was he doing anything that he wasn't entitled to do? And it sounds like maybe, um, in some sense, he he was fine because he can accept or refuse, or he can decide not to work with you or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's maybe is something that he's not entitled to do, which is like put on pre pretense of being involved in a sort of collaborative relationship where you're producing content, he's publishing it, and then at the same time, sort of trying to get the upper hand or being defensive about, uh, you know, concerns or so that you might think there's obligations of collaboration that involves like working in good faith to, you know, um, hear each other's concerns and work to sort of sort them out. And then maybe he didn't do, didn't do that, you know, sort of starts out by finding faults with you to sort of, um, be in a stronger bargaining position or something like that. Right. Um, um, or just being resistant. So I don't know, defensive, I don't know. There's a way people can be just defensive and it's a lot like the way the asshole is defensive. So yeah, I might say like defensive, like an asshole would be well, least, I don't know like, that 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 that's way. something a lot of, yeah. This
0: was my only interaction with him. I don't, I don't know yeah. the person, you know, face to face. And I, I spoke to his boss about it. And she said, you know, like he, uh, he typically, we can't have him deal with any freelancers because this is how he, you know,
1: uh, works with oh so okay like anything well, that sounds like it's in character to then.
0: me because he's just not a you know uh, good with dealing with people unfortunately
1: oh, okay well maybe that maybe that is more in character than
0: it, well and i um, looked him up and he has a man bun so i'm kind of thinking that maybe those things are mutually exclusive uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have to be an asshole
2: to have a yeah. man bun. i don't know no, I don't know. Go <laughs> ahead. <David. laughs> but, yeah. What yeah. gives you chance the the entitlement to make those judgments? <laughs> no, um. Uh. So when I was reading when I was reading this book, and I'm guessing I would think almost everyone to a certain extent had to have stopped and, and thought about this at one point, which was, am I an asshole? Um, or which one of these categories if I was an asshole would I fit in? And I was wondering when you were writing it, did you were you having any of that self reflection? Or when you were writing it, were you, was that purposeful? Was that, did you think people would be thinking through those processes, um, when, when reading it?
1: Yeah. I addressed the, I addressed the issue at one point about whether there's a test. Yeah. Um, you know, and whether you would call yourself an asshole, I don't think is a, a reliable test because assholes call themselves assholes right. and, and that's an asshole move. Um, there's an onion headline that goes exactly like that. It says asshole calls himself an asshole and supreme asshole move. Um, <laughs> But I think there is a good test of shame that is if you would feel if, if the thought of your being an asshole would really give you pause, like, oh, gosh, you know, that, that would be. Bad. am I really if you're sort of really worried about whether you're an asshole, then that's at least evidence that you're not one um, or or maybe if you're you're at least a conflicted asshole, you're often an asshole in lots of context, but then sort of not all the way there, not a proper asshole. So I think that's I, so I think. That would be the test. That, that would be sort of a test. But otherwise, I think uh, the, the story about what it is to be even a full-fledged proper asshole is still supposed to draw from something that we can all recognize in ourselves. You can call it your inner asshole or whatever. Everyone has an inner asshole and um, the real asshole just lets it out, you know, or um, doesn't restrain themselves in the way we've all been learned to learn to through good socialization. Restrain, or restrain not just impulses, you know, like to eat, you know, too many cookies or something, but, but impulses to rationalize in a defensive way, um, to sort of, uh, yeah, selfishly construct entitlements and, and sort of bolster our confidence to wall out the opinions of other people. I mean, all those things that are sort of become sort of pathological in the proper asshole are sort of things we can find within ourselves or in a bad moment um, on a bad day, you know, find yourself lapsing into. Um, so I definitely had that. I definitely had that in mind. Um, and in some sense the asshole in seeing sort of an extreme version of those tendencies holds up a mirror for us so that we can sort of see ourselves or see certain moments, bad moments, you know, in the way that this person stably is the, it's different from the psychopath where they seem beyond the pale and they, don't don't have or not motivated by moral concepts. That's that's something that's very difficult for us to understand and recognize. Can't we don't see ourselves in that, you know? Um, but the asshole is supposed to be someone where it's sort of like the feeling is, well, there go I, but but by the grace of God, there go I, I, you know, kind of thing. It's not, yeah, that it's not sort of beyond anyone. I mean, even if it isn't, in fact, beyond. Most people, they couldn't really become an asshole, wouldn't really go to it. But in some sense, we can still see enough of ourselves in the asshole sort of to identify with them. Yeah, and I think,
0: at least for me, some of the, the traits that I've found the most irritating in people, I, I take a step back, and I I think that the reason that I, I'm irritated by that person is because I hold those traits myself. And, uh, I, and so I think that that's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, like, I, I guess I relate that to what you're saying about reflecting. You're seeing a mirror and other people are reflecting on, on other people's behavior is maybe that's a, a reflection of yourself. Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: That could be, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons why I might be especially frustrated with assholes. A lot of them are one of them. Yeah. One of them could be that we see our own flaws. I don't think that's as obvious actually to us. I meant to invite that thought, but the more obvious thing is like the guy just won't listen. Like, um, and why do I feel so disrespected, you know, uh, for not, yeah. because my th- thoughts just aren't given any consideration or they're ruled out as credible from go. And, um, you know, so there's more sort of frontal like offense. I think that the asshole perpetrates. That's just really immediately frustrating and sort of destabilizing. Yeah. One,
0: uh, one thing, but while I still have some time with you, I wanted to uh, make sure that I addressed is. This is something I've I've really been cognizant of at least the last couple of years because it's something I want to catch in myself and prevent myself from doing. So there's a saying that roughly goes, if you run into an asshole during the day, that's unfortunate. If you run into several, you might be the asshole. So it's it's the issue of the common factor. And I've noticed that, you know, the more that I think about that, I notice that in a lot of people who always seem to find themselves surrounded by people who they call assholes or bitches or, or whatever, and I, I wonder, do you simply have the rotten luck of it, of encountering all of these people in these situations and these circumstances? Or is there something that's that you're doing that's attracting this reaction to you? And I would opt for the latter, um, especially if I know who that person is. And looking back at the patterns of at least my life, I truly believe that what you put out, you get back tenfold.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, everyone's going to be stuck with dealing with an asshole over one time or another. And if somebody hasn't been especially careful anyway to sort of follow a no-asshole rule and not associate with them, then it's pretty easy to wind up, you know, kind of, Or especially if you're good-natured and forgiving and you overlook follow-ons and stuff like that. You know, you go pretty far along in various relationships, you know, at work or people get married to an asshole, things like that. Um, so I don't think that that sort of, if nothing else, that doesn't necessarily show that they're an asshole, but I take it the saying that you were mentioning, it suggests that a way that certain kinds of people rationalize asshole conduct, that is everyone else is an asshole or they're incompetent or, um, or losers or lazy or whatever, you know? Um, and then, so it's okay for me, you know, so basically we're on a war footing, you know, like, <laughs> And it's okay for me to be an asshole, too, because, you know, war is hell. And so you just got to do what you got to do. And so some people sort of can read and interpret, you know, almost uh, many many social interactions that way as a kind of standing entitlement to do things that would otherwise not be justified
0: (laughs) well it's sort of i guess a victimization of you know these people that i've encountered that you can't even have really a, a much of a conversation about anything without it leading to them talking about how somebody was an asshole to them or they had to deal with such a such person and and it makes you wonder you know listening to these people long enough it's like man like how you know are you doing something that's that's either attracting this or are, are you perhaps the asshole and you just don't want to take that blame. So you just, you know, say that everybody else is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, no, I think there's a, there, that's a certain type of asshole. I think that, you know, maybe one with low self-worth who has something like a victim complex because they, by thinking that other people are always mistreating them, sometimes they might be, you know, but, but, but that they're always doing that. They can and then they take that as a justification for, for doing things that wouldn't otherwise be justified. Then in response to that, other people might be do might do things in reaction and they'll just get in a bad dynamic. And of course, for this person, they're always gonna then find grievance in something the other did and then sort of make themselves out to be in the right. And sort of like they might have, you know, yeah, partly because they've instigated a lot of sort of soured bad interactions. Um they might have all these stories right so yeah it would in that case it would sort of it'd be a case of taking two to tango you know where it's a it's a bad dynamic that the person themselves creates hmm
0: uh, I recently noticed, uh, some pretty potent examples of assholes in football because it is football season and I don't personally watch sports, but I catch things peripherally in the gym or whatever. But last month there was an NFL player who was so outraged at the quarterback on the opposing team. They got in each other's faces and that player pulled off the quarterback's helmet and hit him over the head with it. A week or two later, I, uh, notice two college players who were throwing fists with one another. And I make special note of football because the punishment for these behaviors are a lot more severe than say hockey. And I think it's interesting because their ego is obviously so important that they must, they must know even in the moment that what they're doing is going to at least, you know, suspend them for the rest of the season and possibly for their careers. Uh, And there's certainly going to be heavily, heavy uh, fines involved. So it's it's just interesting that their level of assholeness is is so large that it's more important to give in to being the asshole than to swallow their pride in light of those consequences. And also, real quick, I wanted to, I, I didn't want to make sure that this get got left behind. Um, because I do think it is important to talk about the cable news assholes. Uh you had mentioned uh, Bill O'Reilly Bill O'Reilly as an example, the main sort of the main perpetrator of assholes on right-leaning cable news. Um, And there's a really good interview you can find on YouTube where he talks to Marilyn Manson, uh, where at the beginning of the interview, you can tell that O'Reilly has the cockiness and arrogance of thinking that he's got this conversation in the bag. And he comes at Manson with a lot of accusations and stigmas. And Manson almost always, in my opinion, is the smartest person in the room. Very cool, calm and collected and responds intelligently and respectfully. Uh, so, and by the end of the six minute interview, O'Reilly has managed to cool off his ego enough to engage in a pretty good conversation with Manson. And it's almost like his demeanor prevailed over O'Reilly's being an asshole and elevated him to a more reasonable level.
1: Yeah. I mean, O'Reilly, he's sort of like one of the original People News assholes, but like maybe not as bad as some of the newer ones. Um, and there would be moments I remember seeing him where he was sort of reining it in. I mean, because he's, part of his shit is he's still trying to present himself as the reasonable man, right. Which, you know, and the champion of the reasonable aggrieved, uh, guy, you know, on the street. And so he would sort of self-consciously try to prove that he's, you know, reasonable too. in that, and that way, but still, still dominate dominant, but then, okay, yeah, I can hear a point and make a point of, you know, hear a point from someone else and make a point of that that reasonable is. So I think that maybe there's less of that. Um, maybe there's less of that as a strategy now, um, but yeah, but it's, a, it's a, I think it's a pretty different environment than when O'Reilly was on the air.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, different in which ways? Is it, is it better or worse, or just different?
1: Well, I mean, to a large extent, if it's I don't depending on what cable news shows it is, but if you're thinking of like Fox News or the opinion shows, then that, they're sort of like just propaganda machines. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're just trying to spin whatever. Not even it's not even spin anymore. It's just like it's Conjecture. highlight anything they can possibly Yeah. Create it. It's just sustain a narrative um, um, that's often based on massive misrepresentations um, or suppress or just suppression of important facts and evidence um, and, you know, conveying tone. And so it's, it's, it's much more of a, it's a different kind of show um, um, that's much more orchestrated
0: i think then well and why are we attracted to that i mean because you mentioned you say that they're basically the excuse i guess for these networks is that they're giving people what they want but you say well apparently people want to listen to blowhards and i've often struggled with this i complain that 24-hour news and the negative effects that it has on culture but to be fair i think we have to acknowledge that people do have their own agency and if they keep coming back to it they are just given what they want um and why, why is it, is it a lowest common denominator thing? Is that, is that kind of what it comes down to?
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of, a, a, lot, a lot of things, the uh, more successful ones are exploiting, often exploiting psychological quirks that make us pay attention or make people um, gravitate or, you know, there is a kind of con element. I mean, like a the con man, I mean, it's, there's two involved. There's a the person being duped. Right. And then there's the con man. It's not like, um, I mean, the con man shouldn't be putting on a con; shouldn't be duping people, but can only do it because the dupe is sort of gullible right, or yeah. manipulable there's in some a certain kind of way. way. Right? Yeah. So, and and not that, and that's true even among very intelligent people. It's there's nothing about you know It's, good, it's like, especially if you're in a kind of what's seen as like a political or cultural war, and you know, what's important is winning and defeating the other side and delegitimizing the other side and reading ourselves, assuring ourselves that we're on the side of the righteous and the good, then at that point it's not like the market as it were. the demand isn't for reasoned argument and facts, right? It's for just it's for just assurance and good vibes and um and those kind of those so that's and that that gets offered, you know, by the by the, um, the cable news people, but it is demanding, and there's a kind of mm-hmm. you know mutual feedback. Well, it almost kind uh, of
0: circles back to one of the first things we talked about with asshole cap- capitalism, and you know, there it's just kind of feeding into what you know what is good for ratings and casting a wide, the widest net, po- net possible. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I think there was a general. There's a general problem about the media infrastructure that that fits with the, the conflicting incentives. But if you're talking about Fox News as a propaganda outlet, then that's much more tied with the sort of rise of nationalism white nationalism and, you know, Trump especially, you know, his new form of it. And then, you know, Fox News sort of being part of that that the propaganda machine. Yeah. Um, which involves, you know, disinformation, fake news, things like that, you know, like that are now being Well, now very effectively working, and that has to do with sort of tribalism and tribal politics, and um, that's a deeper story about American life than just the media architecture, although that's a contributing factor.
0: I uh, I hope that you read a – or not read, but you listen to the episode that I did last week with Michael Kimmel. He's the author of a book called Angry White Men, American Masculinity at the End of an Era – and he goes right into that rabbit hole that we're, we're, you know, hovering over right now. So, yeah. um, so the last thing I'll ask you is, uh, you know, what do we do about this? What do you know, how do we curb this, uh, this epidemic? And you wrote this book back in 2012. So, yeah. I mean, it's obviously been an ongoing issue since then. And where do you, where do you see things going from now? I and mean, you did write a follow up book about the Trump administration as well.
1: Oh, it was in 2016 during the the follow-up book was during the Republican primary. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so to say, it was like kind of cautionary tale, um, pitch from the point of view of a small R Republican, and why you know Trump is not an only asshole, but the kind of um, and I think that's just even his supporters thought he was, but they thought he would have a, be a productive force, um, you know, in managing assholes. Um, but I was saying, well, I know it's, it's not going to work, you know, and if you're if you're a smaller Republican and cares about, you know, a Democratic or Republican, it's a potentially fatal error. And that's like those warnings turned out to be true. I mean, I think have blown out with what we've seen. Um, how we go, where we go from here um, is a much more difficult question. I mean, in the long run, of course, you need like a pretty massive revamp of the political system so that to fulfill actually the founders' ideal. You know, we're neither angels nor devils, um, but you can a, a carefully designed political system with checks and balances and accountability and cooperation can can prevent you know the assholes from rising to power and draw forth the better angels of our nature and you know and create a sense of public service and. Without fully trusting anyone with power, holding them accountable, things like that. So in the long run, like a, there's a lot of political reforms, and it wouldn't be any anyone, but a lot of a lot more really necessary to sort of um, sort of reconstitute a uh, functional politics. But in the end, also I think you need to double down on a new economic social contract. So some of the back sort sense of broken, you know, um, economic promises, of stagnant wages for a long time, limited opportunities, bad jobs, things like that. Um, have have created the background of sort of distrust or lack of confidence that then triggers, you know, like tribalistic or nativistic type thinking to re re trust. And in the short run, I think, in the short run, I think what has to to happen is that the sort of style of, the asshole style of politics that Trump, you know, is like perfected (laughs) has to, you know, which is emulated in a big way I think it has to sort of be seen to fail in a decisive way. I mean, um, and that's the only reason it wouldn't be repeated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, we're not there yet. On um, 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 Right now, it seems like it's still working uh, pretty well, too well. I mean, a lot would depend on whether Trump loses re-election and whether or not the GOP gets um you know loses the senate and stuff like that i mean that could lead to the idea that like, be seen as a decisive repudiation on the style of politics but since that's not clear well also they could lose in it and it's not seen as a repudiation so that's maybe even a as big of a danger um so but in the short run i think yeah you have to see that this kind of politics fails and that something else um is better so as one
0: good philosopher put it from uh Bill and Ted Ted Theodore Logan just says be excellent to each other <laughs>
1: yeah right
0: so uh, alright well, I would love it if uh, you just let people know where to find what you're working on what you have worked on up to this point
1: uh, yeah on my website UC Irvine uh, philosophy department website there's a long list of my uh, publications the more popular oriented ones coming toward the end um, but then the academic stuff uh, before that so you can get to that just by googling my name Aaron James okay. um that should be the first hit usually. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much. I know that your time is valuable, and I, you know, I, I appreciate you spending an hour with us to talk about this subject. It's a pleasure. All right.
1: Thank you.